You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 123. Hey, 123. Hey, subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast app. And check out Coding Blocks on that. We find show notes, examples, discussion, and like 122 other episodes. True that. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, Happy New Year. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications allowing you to see inside any stack, any app, at any scale, anywhere. And Educative.io, level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set and about you. One of the fastest growing e-commerce companies headquartered in Hamburg, Germany, that is growing fast and looking for motivated team members like you. All right. Well, as we always like to do, let's, uh, we want to say thanks to everybody who uh, took the time out of their busy day to leave us a review. And so uh, from iTunes, we have Boulder Dude 333 the pang one and i'm not going to be fooled by this uh because he he's he said that it's supposed to be pronounced like fish so he would probably want me to say fish 26 but i'm not falling for it i'm pretty sure it's physich 26 <laughs> i think that's who are you going to trust you going to take his word good for catch. it or mine good right. catch. i was so hoping you hadn't read it <laughs> oh, that's so awesome uh, yeah i know yes. i did and i liked the the pang one cuz i was like Oh, wait a minute. Is that supposed to be like the penguin? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Penguin. Yes. Very good stuff. All right. So we actually have a short bit of news this time. We don't have a, an entire episode going off on the Stack Overflow um, you know, problems that we ran into. Uh, so in this case, uh, reminder, I'll be at NDC London on January 31st talking about Real-time streaming using SQL Server, Kafka, and some other stuff. So if you are there, um, or if you're in the London area, hit me up. I would love to meet some people out there while I while I have the opportunity to be out there. And I might even have some swag with me. So, you know, definitely hit me up. Outlaw, don't we have some swag coming here pretty soon? Uh, I'm hoping it'll be here in time for your trip. Okay. I don't want to like so, give away anything in case we don't. Yeah, if we don't, we don't, but I may have some. So at any rate, yes, definitely reach out to me and and we'll try and set up a time to all get together. And then, Joe, what you got? So I'll be down in South Florida at CoCamp on on February 29th, which is not a joke. Uh, I guess it's just one of those years. It's on Leap Year, uh, South Florida. And uh, I'm going to talk on streaming architectures by example. We're going to be talking about uh, Kafka uh, down at the bottom all the way up to uh, GraphQL subscriptions at the top and uh, hopefully that's going to be a cool talk and uh, let me know, kick me in the shins, you know, whatever. Oh, and one last one, because I don't have it in here and and we should, we just talked about it a second ago, is I believe all three of us will also be down at Orlando Code Camp March 28th. Yes. So, yep. Oh, I was thinking um, it was the South Florida. Got no one. Oh, nope. okay. Uh, South Florida is down in uh, Davies slash Miami area. And I'll be all by myself for that one. Okay. Yep. So uh, we'll get this in the show notes here. But yeah, definitely. Um, if you are in the area, 
come come hang out, say hi to us, and you know enjoy a day of learning and for kick nothing. Alan right? and Joe in the shins. Kick us in the shins. No, <laughs> kick Joe in the shins. <laughs> yeah, I got two of them. So <laughs> first two first two people get free kicks. Everybody else has got something coming to him. <laughs> so it's a risk you got to take. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, uh, can you tradition, we're giving away a book. So drop a, a comment down in the comment section on the website and uh, you might win. On this episode, which will be codingblocks.net slash episode 123. One, two, three. Yeah. And uh, now we're uh, jumping in here with uh, data models, which the book specifically calls out as being one of the most important pieces of software. Data and, model uh, or a data model? I think oh, we already no. had what the did data I say? versus data. I say data. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Hey, by the way, I, I believe uh, I can't. Was it? I can't remember who it was now. But somebody called us out and said, "Hey, let's mention the portion of the book that we're looking at." So this oh, is started in Jim, Jim, yes. Jim, Jim Hummelson, right? Yeah. So yes, we are. This is starting in chapter two. So yes, it took us a little while to get through chapter one because there was a bunch of meat there. Um, so this is starting in chapter two. This is the very beginning of it. So if you're trying to follow along, this will help you out. Yeah, good call. Oh uh, yeah, so data models, <laughs> which is being one of the most important uh, pieces of software. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's what, what they said. That's what they, they said said in the book. Part of developing software. Okay, that's it. The the phrasing kind of ah, ah. All sorts of developing software. And I told you, like for so many years, and I'm honestly, I'm still kind of there. Like I tend to think of like kind of database and persistence first. Like that's just kind of an old, bad, maybe not. I don't know. Habit of mine. <laughs> So uh, I was happy to see that particular sentence. Like, yeah, it is pretty dang important. And they say the reason it is is because a lot of times it dictates how the software is written, right? So when you're thinking about these data models, whether or not you're using a relational database system or something, it's gonna it's gonna drive how you do your application stuff, right? Well, maybe yeah, you know, more. I'm oh, sorry, but maybe more importantly, though, I think we've talked about this before, but they they also mentioned. Uh, that it, it dictates how you even think about the problems that you're trying to solve. And I'm, I think we've talked about this in the past as it relates to um, like, which language did you start your, your, you know, developing career with or your programming adventures with, because that often led to like how you would think about the problems, right? Like if you, if you started in a object oriented language, like a, a C plus plus or C sharp or a Java, then, you know, you thought about things in these object kind of ways. Whereas if you came from like a, um, you know, maybe something that was a little bit more free, like a Python or a JavaScript, you know, then you weren't held to those same kind of constraints in the way you thought about how to solve the problem to begin with. Yep. You know, I was going to say like when I'm kind of designing an application, like if it's totally from scratch, I just got an idea. I tend to kind of think persistence first. So if I'm coming up with business idea or app idea, I might start thinking like, well, I'm going to want to go with a relational database on this because my data is going to be kind of small. So I'm not going to hit some of the limitations and constraints about it. It's simple. Like, you know, I can work fast and familiar with the tools with it. And then from there, I'll go on and maybe choose a language or a platform or a framework or other things. But uh, I still kind of tend to think of the, the data as being – I don't want to say the heart or the center because we talked about how that's a bad idea when we did the clean architecture series, but it's still just such a big part of the decision for me that ends up influencing more uh, factors down the line, at least for me. 
Hey, so that uh, remind me towards the end, I'm going to ask a question about that when we get to the end in regards okay. to designing with the database first, because I think uh, I think we might have some interesting answers to my question. Yeah. Okay. I'll try to remember that. No promises. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I'll remember it either. So hmm. right. if if we get there and I remember, awesome. If not, it's yeah. gonna be like in Star Wars. I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> right, spoilers. Right. Uh, we'll we'll try to remember to come back to it. Yes. Um. So one of the things that they say about this and the reason why it's super important, not only because of how you think about the problem and the fact that it, it dictates how you write the software, but it's also because typically your software is just layers of of more data models stacked on top of each other, right? Like one thing um, obfuscating the one beneath it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we kind of made a comment about that. Um, or I think I made a, a some kind of comment to that maybe the last episode or the episode before where I was talking about like how, you know, if you recall where I was saying like, Hey, imagine if you took everything you knew today and you went, you know, back in, you you got in the um, doc Brown's DeLorean and you went back in time, right? Like you still couldn't like immediately jump to where we are today. You'd still have to like go through all those lessons learned and, and create all of those, um, you know, those are different abstractions on top of one another, right. Uh, To get to where we are today. Yeah. Which is a really difficult thing, right? Like, I mean, even, even us three and, and probably a lot of people listening to the podcast, if you've been doing software development for any amount of time, there's some stuff you can read a hundred times, but until you actually go to do it, you don't truly understand what it means when, when you start hitting all those different pieces, right? Oh, back yeah. to back. I mean, I was just thinking even in regards to like how much more complicated chips are today, you know, versus like what it would have been like you know, what I imagine it might've been like to, to do any type of like hardware, like low level, what we would call like a low level hardware programming, you know, from decades past. Right. And, uh, you know, now it's like, even the chips have gotten so complicated to where you think that you're interacting directly with the chip, but it's actually an abstraction that's sitting on top of the chip itself that it's, it lives in on the chip, but it's, it's like a chip in the chip kind of thing, you know, um, specific to like the Intel processors, you know, and that's why I'm saying like, you know, there's no way you're going to get to that level of difficulty. Like, you know, you're going to have to go through iterations to get there. And that's what like we as a, as a, as a being have like gone through decades of iteration until we've like, Hey, you know what? We can make this easier. And now we'll have this other like abstraction on top of the chip, you know, to deal with the registers and the hyper threading and whatnot. And, you know, you just call that, that API that we'll give you and trust that, you know, we're going to take it from there. Well, that's kind of the next point that they get to is this, this whole abstraction. The reason we have them is because we write code that represents objects that represent the real world or the real problem that we're trying to solve. Right. And that's the whole reason why we have these layers, you know, so you have your chipset and it has its registers and everything that you have to do. But then when you're going to write stuff to use that, you're going to write things in a way that makes sense for the problem you're trying to solve. Right. And then it just, you keep stacking more layers on top of that until you finally get to the application that somebody's using. That's kind of the, like the story of technology throughout history. Like, you, know, you mentioned kind of going back in time with the knowledge. Like, if you drop me back in like 1800, like, hey, Joe Zach, Kotlin master here, and uh, I'm ready to show you guys the future. <laughs> I, I don't know. I need some buckets of silicon, I guess. Maybe somebody fetch me some electricity. I, I, oh, 
Yeah, I'd be in trouble. You, would, like, you, you took the time machine too far back. Yeah. Yeah, they would be so disappointed. They'd be like, you can't do anything, can you? Like, <laughs> but I've got this cool thing called Kotlin. It yeah. is funny. Like, if you if we if we were to go back that far in time, like I would have no discernible skill that would be worth anything no. for that time period. I would just be like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to die over here in the corner because <laughs> I'm not going to be able to I feed myself. I teach you guys a game called basketball. That's, <laughs> that's the only thing that's really going to transfer here. Uh, that's amazing. I'd be like, this chair is uncomfortable and all I do is sit all day. <laughs> yeah. Everything more it's comfortable? <laughs> it's a rock. <laughs> yeah, doomed. Uh, uh, so I don't know what we were talking about anymore, but uh, something about JSON. Yeah, so so we have we have these objects, right? These things that that we code these you know real life objects that we try and put to code, but then these things have to get translated in some sort of format where they get persisted, right? We got JSON, XML, relational tables, graph databases, like all kinds of things, and then. And then there's a layer on top of that where the people that built the storage engine had to determine how the model, how, how to get that data on disk and in memory so that it supports things that you need, right? Like, so maybe it's either fast writes or maybe it's searchable or maybe it's fast lookups or whatever, right? Like, so, so we've already talked about multiple abstractions for your simple little application that you're trying to do, right? Like you might even just have a form that you're trying to fill out, but there's all these layers that live under it just to make that stuff happen. There's so much we take for granted. And that that's right. the one thing that like going through this book has just made me think just how much more we take for granted. And like when you watch something like a, a Star Trek, for example, and you know how often they'll use, uh, you know, like voice dictation and they're in, in like AI to do everything for them. Right. Just like when we get to that point, like how much more we will be taking for granted, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. We're already getting there. Well, the crazy part is, so we just talked about like where it's storing things on disk, but then if you take it to the extreme, you were talking about the chips earlier, Outlaw, uh, all that stuff then has to be converted into electrical pulses yep. um, or, or electrical currents. Um, so in some cases, if it's being transmitted by light, it could be light pulses. Uh, if it's getting stored on tape, it could be magnetic. Like, there's like there's so much going on from the top down and it's all just additional layers right all apis that are being interfaced with from your application all the way down to the hardware layer and then the hardware on how it's actually going to transmit that stuff and store it so i've heard the recommendation i think it was from uh, scott hanselman it basically said like learn your layer of abstraction and one below it hmm. huh. that's a that's a really good point honestly it's almost like like the world in, in in any version of whatever you want to call the tech technology, right? Cause you know, everything's complex around us, right? Not just, uh, things related to computers, but, um, you know, it's basically like an inverted, like an upside down triangle, right? Or, you know, like a cone basically, right? And each layer is building on top of it, getting a little bit wider and more complex as, as you, keep building adding more things on it but at the very bottom of that bottom point like what's what's being done is like you know depending on your your perspective you might say oh that's simple right you're just flipping a bit right well what does it take to flip that bit i mean you gotta that you're going to your point about the electrical current and all that right like no man making electricity that's not simple right (laughs) and it's like okay well we made electricity so now it's simple and you know it's like yeah so that that point is like 
ultimately going to become very, very small, but you you keep building more complex things on top of it once you solve it. Like look at the wheel, right? The idea of building the wheel, that's pretty simple. But now look at all the things we do with it, right? right. There's not just cars and planes and trains, but like all the different ways that like uh, even the rollers that are used on assembly lines to like, you know, move a box from one person to the next person without anyone having to touch it, right? Like things like that, that are all based on that same kind of concept. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it before. Programming is very much like anything else, uh, like building a house, right? Or anything. There's there's your base things that you have to do and you have to build layers on. The, the biggest difference is we realize we screw up a lot of stuff in programming and we tear out the floors a lot, right? <laughs> Which I don't think a lot of people um, really like doing that in their homes, but uh, that's probably the equivalent of it. Yeah, but remember, we're not supposed to refer to it as building houses anymore, right? That was what we learned I from what uh, it was. Well, I think it was the pragmatic programmer that we yeah, that we learned that say? from, where they said you, to refer to it as gardening. Ah, that's right. That's right. That everybody makes the mistake of referring to programming as building a house, and they use that analogy because it's something that people can relate to, but really the better analogy would be gardening. You know, I don't feel so bad about my node modules folder anymore. Like all it's doing is just showing me that lineage. So like if I go drive my car, like I don't need to see the, you know, or I don't get to see all the little various pieces of like, uh, I don't know, fire and chemistry and like uh, oil refining that goes into such a little trip. Uh, it's all kind of abstracted and hidden from me. But uh, node modules, once you hit that JavaScript layer, it just kind of uh, explodes. Well, I it's love to think about how how complex cars have gotten. Like I, I'm one, I'm a car fan. I love cars, right? Um, <clears throat> but you know, you go back and you look at a car from the '60s, right? Look at how few wires there are in that car. Oh yeah, right? there's hardly any wires in it. Now, now go look at a modern car. You know, and and I'm not even. I'm not. We don't even have to go to the electrical cars. Like we could just stay on the normal combustion engine cars and just look at how much more complex they are. I mean. They're, they're, you know, you take a car from the 60s, you could crawl into the engine bay to work on it and stand in the engine bay to work on it and and still have plenty of room. Like there could be two or three of you working on it while you're standing in it, right? You get it, you open up the hood on a modern car, you got to take a tire off to change a light bulb. Man, <laughs> you, you know what? This this is actually sort of tangential to uh, development because – this this kind of reminds me of an article I read not not terribly long ago where they said that newer cars are s- super expensive to work on. So, for instance, a lot of these cars that have proximity sensors around them, right? Um, like backup sensors and and you know people getting into your lane sensors and all that. They said the problem is these cars were built with all this technology, but the maintenance bays that have existed for years at companies that work on these cars aren't big enough to maintain them. They, they don't, they're not set up to deal with the technology that's being put into these cars. And so it can be super expensive to work on these things because they don't have a place to do it. So keep that in mind. Like when you're building software, think about the maintenance of it because it actually matters, right? And how people have to maintain it because if you don't do it in a way that, that makes sense for other developers following you, it can be expensive and problematic. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's sort of a decent parallel. Yeah. Um, I like it in true hardware, right? Um, but 
getting back to this, so like one of the things that they say in the book, and we know is true, is complex applications, maybe not even not even so complex of applications, they all have many layers on it, right? Like we've talked about before in C sharp, like naively when you first start playing with web API and we we've talked um, with people on our Slack channel and stuff about this. We'll get questions about, Hey, how would you do this? A lot of people, when they start doing web API, they'll code all their code right there in the web API endpoint. Right. And that seems great at the time until they realize, well, I need to share this with something that's not making a web request. Right. And so eventually what you do is you move that code out of your web API and you put it into more of a central like application layer or something, right? And then your web API can use it and anything else that needs to use it can use it. So even in simple applications, you start building those layers so that you have APIs talking to APIs. I mean, I I faced a real world example of this not too long ago where um, I had some code that needed to be refactored, but the code itself was written for um, an executable. It was an e- just a normal command line exe, and uh, you know that that we we use, was one of the tools that we use. And um, but I, but I needed to refactor it, and it was like, well, okay, this code is all in the exe. I can't write a unit test to verify how it currently works, and then verify that my refactoring doesn't change anything. So. I got to move this out into another library so that it can become an API to the EXE so that I can then have a way to, to verify how it works and then verify that I didn't break it when I refactor it. Right. Yep. Just, and the thing is the whole purpose of these layers is to hide the complexity under it. Right. That's, that's really what it is. Your layer, like when you created this new, this new library, that was there just to serve as the API for that program to call it, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything is truly just about simplifying things as you move further in your stack. Yep. Yep. Program is just all about uh, abstraction. <laughs> Sounds it, pretty cool. Isn't there some say, kind of joke about that too? About like, I think we've referenced it before, but like, uh, what, what do you need? What does your program need? Another abstraction or something like that? Or like, what makes it more? Uh, I'm remember. sure there are jokes. <laughs> Yeah, just like way down. Yeah. Uh, I was <laughs> hoping as I said it that maybe one of you guys would remember it and like fill in the blanks for me, but oh well. I got nothing. I barely remember what I ate for breakfast. <laughs> so um it, which is funny because I can remember how to program. I just can't remember any of the other stuff around <laughs> it. So I don't I don't know if it's just garbage in, some some garbage out. I don't know. Oh, so much room you get something new in, something's gotta go out. Yeah, a lot a lot tumbles out. I feel like more falls out than, than comes in though. Yeah. Well buy oh. breakfast for sure. <laughs> um so yeah, one of the reasons that they say that these abstractions even exist is to allow different groups of people to work together, right? Like you might have a data team working with the application team, or you might have an ops team working with you know, your application team, something like that, right? Like, but these abstractions allow different groups to work together. Yep, and uh, there are many different types of data models. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of that coming up here. And they all have kind of different usages and basically different pros and cons and different needs that they were designed for. And uh, you've got to kind of know what those pros and cons are and understand what you're getting into. Uh, especially with persistence, a lot of times you end up with one of these things that uh, stays around for a long, long time. Uh, people don't tend to change their persistence very often, although as we've said before, it definitely does happen. But these tend to, to be big, big kind of uh, cornerstone pieces of your architecture. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you say that it does happen, it's probably like once a decade kind of change, though. 
Yeah. You think that that would be a fair statement or agree or disagree? More often, less often? I lucky, used yeah. to agree. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, you think the data model changes more often than that? Yeah. It, it seems like, I, I guess, I don't know, maybe just the positions we've been in the past year, year and a half. Like, it feels like it's happened way more than it ever has in my career, right? So I think I think mm. it depends on I, I take it back. I think now that cloud is becoming more prevalent in, in every business's strategy, that these things are probably prone to change a little bit more going forward for companies that are trying to migrate to the cloud, maybe. So so if you picked so you're saying that if you picked Oracle today, you might pick Postgres next year and then change your mind and go to MySQL the following year and then get crazy and go to db2 because you know why not or or right like if you're moving to azure maybe you're going to use cosmos db because that's their infinitely scalable database architecture and you don't want to have to deal with the problems that you ran in with your on-prem database server so i, I again i i think see i, I think I disagree if, if you're running your same application the same way that you've always run it and you never plan on changing it the chances are you're never going to change that that data model under it right yeah that's but, why i said the once decade thing I, I think that once you get your application working whatever data model you you settled on that thing is going to be the beast for a long time right like it's going to be re- you'll change it'll change it's just a rare day that it'll change. That's why I was, you know, referring to it as like the once a decade kind of thing. Like, I'm hoping that changes based <laughs> off this podcast. So, for one, <laughs> the for power one of reason, coding blocks. For for one reason alone, or or this book, the or the fact that we're covering this book is, I feel like for so long, people have tended to use whatever database system or whatever storage system that they've used for everything, right? Because they bought it, they've got it, they have people that know that stuff. And so they start trying to squeeze everything out of it that it wasn't even intended for, right? We've talked about it in the past, like search engines. You know, we did an entire series or episode on Elasticsearch and the fact that, you know, search engines exist for a reason. Well, a lot of people are trying to cram that into a database. So what I'm hoping is maybe you're not replacing your existing uh, storage system, uh, database system or whatever, but maybe you start thinking about how you augment it, right, with your application, with various needs of your application in mind. So maybe maybe that's more what I'm hoping for. See, I don't know, man. I I, I disagree because I think that like if you took the time to go with um, Cosmos DB, you picked that one for example. Like w- once you buy into some platform, right? Like if you, which Cosmos is uh, uh, the Azure platform, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Like yep. you're not going to like a suddenly like or easily say, hey, you know what? We're switching to uh, AWS Aurora, right? Right, because because there's buy-in. Like once you once you get into one of those cloud platforms, you're there's kind of like lock-in. I called it buy-in. I meant to say lock-in. Like it's you can easily get locked into that one thing, right? Like if you use the technology that's specific to that one, you know, cloud stack, right? But but going back though is what I'm saying is maybe you're not changing out the entire back end, but when you when you decide that you need to have this fancy little search app or search feature in your application instead of trying to cram it all into uh, Azure or, or into Cosmos or into 
Oracle or whatever your existing database system was, you say, hey, we're trying to make a search system. Let's use the right storage and data model for the job, right? So I guess that's where I'm going is, yeah, you probably aren't going to gut your entire system. It doesn't make sense. But maybe you augment it with a different storage model. Yeah, I think polyglot persistence is big time on the rise. And a lot of that's like just the cloud because it's gotten easier and microservices are more common. So people are having multiple databases and they've kind of, they've agreed to pay that piper. And now they're starting to realize the benefits like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, something like that. Uh, you know, you might say if you met somebody at a meetup or something, you said, uh, we do some SQL and we've got a graph database here on the side. You'd be like, well, what are, what are you, Facebook? I'm Mr. Fancy Pants, you know? It'd be kind of a, a notable experience. But now more and more organizations and smaller and smaller organizations are kind of moving to like multi-data model paradigms, I think. Yeah. I, and I'm hoping that they do. I, and I'm hoping it's all intelligent thinking on – Hey, what is the right tool for the job, right? That that's what I'm hoping happens. So, I don't know. We'll see. Uh so data models do have a huge impact on how you write your applications and this is just what we were talking about. So, thinking about how these data models are used and what they're used for will help you make decisions that might actually ease your road ahead. Yep, and uh yeah. So, um, one thing oh. that we've go ahead. Yeah, no, no, that we missed that line. You're about to talk about it. Uh, I wasn't. I was, uh, but outlaw is. Oh, yeah. I wanted to make sure that we called out that it can take a lot of time and effort to master just a single mod, single data model, which was kind of the point that we were talking about before. Yeah, uh, a lifetime for some data models. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, it's a it's a full time job. So yeah, when we talk about polyglot persistence, the old argument used to be that it was like crazy complex, and so you needed to be getting a lot out of it. And um, I think it still is true. It's just that we can see that there's companies and organizations that have been getting a lot out of having multiple different kinds of data stores. And I mean, think about it. Like, if you question that statement about it taking a lot of time and effort, I mean, there are people that have made their entire career just on something like SQL Server, for example. Oh, yeah. Right? And a lucrative career, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. think, how many people have you ever met in your life that were, like, full-time Oracle? That's all they did was Oracle Database, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and there's still, there's a lot to know. There's new features that come out all the time. There's uh, intricacies, and there's new challenges that make that challenging. And, yeah, it's, it's just hard. It yeah. is hard. <laughs> it all is. So that takes us into, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a couple data models today or tonight, but uh, specifically relational versus document. So I think it's probably pretty easy to say that like everybody, like relational is the one that everybody's going to know the best, right? Like that, that's the one, uh, you know, based off of SQL, like y- you probably learned that one before you learned of anything else, Right. I would think so. Uh, I would definitely think so. I used to think so. You used to think so? <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Yeah, I just I don't know what it, like I think now uh it's it's kind of easy to use NoSQL databases with JavaScript. So I I wonder if there's like kind of new articles that uh that are kind of mongo faced or or uh, if that's changing basically. It's like if you want to work with a relational database until, you know, containerization came along like 
you kind of had a pretty lengthy setup process. It was a pain to butt to even get your environment set up. So it'd be like, hey, write your first web app. Steps one through 11 are setting up your web server and, and database. Yeah. Hey, but in fairness, it wasn't much different for setting up Mongo or anything else either, right? Like it was still a bit of a process to set them up. Yeah, but they came around at a time when things were getting easier. Okay. And so people fair. were getting used to just kind of hitting curl or sometimes they have like a one line command in order to install Mongo and, uh, it would be defaulted with passwords and now containers came around, uh, now. And so they were just, uh, able to jump into that kind of easier user experience because they were more modern and just kind of evolved later. But my All bet right. though is that like r- relational would still be something that most people have heard about more often than not because coming at it even from a school point of view, right? Like you're going to talk about normalization. It's going to be a subject that's going to come up in a classroom. Yeah. Hey, do do either of you guys, did you read in the book when SQL or relational model was first proposed? Do I by want to know? Edgar Codd. Uh, I, I did, but I didn't know if I was supposed to say it. So you kid, say it. you kid. It, it's shocking to me how long ago this actually was. If I remember right, it was 1970. That is correct. 1970, and this wasn't the SQL language. Yeah. This was more about the relational model, right? So you had relations, um, which in SQL Server, or not SQL Server, in SQL are known as tables. And then you had the unordered tuples, and those were your rows, right, with your columns. So that whole thing was, the idea for it was introduced 40 years ago. 50. 50. 50, 50 years ago. Oh my gosh. 50. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So it, you know, the crazy part is, and this is what they said, the the book, people doubted it would even work. Yeah. That is That's funny. awesome. If you think about that. Well, that's okay. Yeah, we still doubt if it works. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. Like, people like, this is not going to be efficient. And so people started doing it. I'm like, oh crap. Okay. This is, this is the way, this is the way. And then uh, now in 2020 or, you know, 2000, people were like, you know what? Uh, maybe this isn't uh, the best, most efficient way. But, you know, that's what's so crazy is this is another thing that they pointed out in the book is they said that it's dominant. SQL, SQL itself, its dominance has been around since the mid 80s, which means that it's been going on for over 30 years or right at 30 years, which in any kind of software is an absolute eternity. Right. Most things don't hang around for five years, let alone 30. Right. So that's pretty incredible. Can I get a redo real quick? Hold on. Hold on. This is the word. <laughs> that's not better. <laughs> but but hold on, though, because, I mean, it's not like we're talking about a a particular piece of software that's lasted. We're basically at this point, like a better comparison would be to say, like, OK, uh, C is still a thing. And C was originally started in year blah, 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 blah. Right. Like, you know, what I mean. But I think what we're talking about here is the whole notion of tables and rows and columns. And the fact that that is still the predominant storage system used by most applications since the earth, since the mid eighties, like you can't point at a programming language that's been that popular since then. I mean, Sure, C++ and C have been around, but that's probably not the go-to. Java's going to be more popular. C-sharp's more, you know, more popular. Well, JavaScript's probably more popular than both of them. So, it's just... I mean, it depends on the thing, though. And that's what I'm saying. Like, C C came out 
1972. So it's almost as old as sequel. Right. Right. And it's still, you know, widely used for like operating system development. Right. Right. Because it's, it's super low level. Right. So depend, I mean, depending on your case, right. But in almost every application that you'll use anywhere, there's probably a relational database system behind the scenes using it or being used by it. Right. And that's pretty crazy when you think about it. Now, do everything. You, do you remember when uh, Microsoft was had was I don't know how to say this uh, experimenting with the idea of making the file system use a relational database Longhorn, under the covers? Yeah. Was that Longhorn really? Yeah, that was their the, the code name for their SQL based file system. I thought it was great at the time. Like, oh, I know how to, I know how to do it. And something made sense to me. You could like search and join. It just seemed like a cool way of doing things. They ultimately ended up abandoning it. Or, but I think they kind of brought some pieces of it forward. It's, uh, it's crazy. I think that was Windows 8 era. That was a long time ago. No, I it think has it was, been a it while was back. Pre Vista. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Wait. Good time. Uh, yeah. So I'm bringing it back in. So the origins for the idea of these kind of relating these entities together, uh, has this, um, basis back in business data processing, uh, and specifically transaction processing. And we're going to be talking a lot about differences and transactions and analytics later. But, uh, when we say transaction here, what we're talking about is basically putting data in and then being able to get that data out. Oh, kind of like a transaction you might have with a bank or some sort of exchange with a, I don't know, a person trading money. Or a guarantee that if you put something in, that it's there. Yeah, that you're able to get it back out. Yeah. Yep, and you're able to do things like, uh, you know, fail, like fail the whole process. So, like, if you've got five things to do, you can wrap in a transaction, and if one fails, then you're able to, you know, back everything out should you choose. Yep. And they call out that there's been a number of these competing storages over the years. So, uh, a couple of them that they called out were the network and the hierarchical models from the 70s and 80s. And then, and this was funny. I didn't realize this, but apparently like object databases were a thing in the late 80s and early 90s, which this was before my programming time. So, um, you know, it's not surprising that I didn't know it, but. I'd always heard that Postgres was a, an object oriented database. So when I first heard about Postgres, I think it's got some origins there and they kind of dropped them over time. Yeah, I, I think it is in your time and you might not have realized it, Alan, because I definitely remember even like in the mid 90s, mid and late 90s hearing references to object databases. Yeah, I, think- I mean, I don't even know what they would have been. I hadn't really gotten started programming hardcore until probably right around 99, 2000, somewhere around there. So. I'd imagine that it was based around the, them calling that was based around uh, basically inheritance. So being able to inherit a table and also having properties. So you would have maybe methods associated with your tables and you could inherit those tables and those methods and enhance them with new columns and new functionality and override and stuff like that. Which is one of the things that Postgres does do that things like SQL and Oracle doesn't is you can inherit a table, right? You could have a people table and then a, a manager's uh, staff, whatever you could, huh. you can do that, which is kind of crazy. I thought yeah. they moved away from that though in, in Postgres. Yeah, they don't, it's not something that they necessarily show a lot. I don't know if you can still do it, but that's definitely um, what its origins were. So 
it's powerful, but I would imagine also leads to a crazy amount of code on, on several sides of it. So here's um, one that like, I don't know if it ever counted as, as an object database, but it always made me think about it whenever the object databases would come up. But do you guys remember Lotus notes? Oh yeah. I hated Lotus notes. Yeah. A action. lot of people did. Yeah. <laughs> most people, most people, it might be fair to say most people, but definitely a lot sounds fair, but I always wonder like, uh, and I don't remember like exactly like how it was classified, you know, as a, uh, you know, object database or not, but uh, that was I know the one it was that IBM's always baby. So, well, originally it was Lotus's baby. Oh, which IBM bought. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Interesting. Well, here's a di- type of database that I had never worked with for sure. Uh, XML databases. Isn't that crazy? Wouldn't you just shoot yourself if that yeah. was even a thing that you had to mess with? I was trying to imagine what that would look like, but the, the, like there, there's like XPath and things like that, and there's schemas, and there's a lot of things that are kind of in common with the database. So I guess it's not unheard of to think that you would be able to kind of search an XML database as if it were like one big document or something. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> right. And what they call out in the book, and, and this is true, there have been a ton of competitors over time, but still relational databases are kind of the thing, right? Like th- they are not the only thing now. There are definitely other purpose built type things and we'll talk about them in a little while. But like we said earlier, uh, and, and they even call it out in the book. Basically, anything that you use on the internet, maybe even in an application on your system, more than likely has some sort of relational database behind it somewhere. And that's saying a lot. Yeah, I think it's still the default choice. Like, If you don't tell me anything about your app, you should say, we're going to start an app tomorrow. What should I use? It's going to be, well, all right. Well, I guess you know, for me, SQL Server or Postgres, uh, you know, that's just what I go with kind of by default. Like, If there's a reason I need to split it up or scale or... Uh, be able to fetch stuff differently then you know that's another story but still my default so so curious real quick you said sql server or postgres any reason my sql is not in that running uh you know i kind of got a bad taste in my mouth i used to work with my sql a lot back in the day and it just had some awkward defaults back then like the my isom table uh structure or, or um whatever the format for the tables was bad and there were a lot of things you could do to kind of work around those, but I was just kind of, I, I was using MySQL in an era when it was kind of painful to do it. And like Postgres was, had just kind of been starting to upstage it. And so I don't, I don't even really know what MySQL is like now, but I just kind of, you know, had it in my mind that Postgres was, you know, my other choice there nowadays. Yeah. I'm kind of with you there on, on the MySQL because I, I too used it in a time period where like it was, you had to really want to use it. Like it, it was, you know, the, the tooling just wasn't there. So it was a little bit more painful to use. You could do some amazing things with it. I'm not trying to count at that discount that from it, but it was, it was a little bit more difficult, but I think even now though, if I had to choose, you know, without a doubt, like I, w- I would go to Postgres. Cause I mean, if you're looking for a free database that is like a relation free relational database that is, fully feature rich, you know, on par with some of the ones that you would pay money for. I mean, Postgres is there, right? I don't know that you could say the same for MySQL. But yeah, I mean, your mileage may vary, but um I was curious though and I looked it up for uh, you know, Lotus Notes, um cuz that's a database system we've never 
I don't, that might be the first time in our six years of recording that we've ever brought that up, but it's considered a document database. Really? Which makes a lot of sense too. As, as I was reading, I was like, yep, yep. I could see that. It's been a long time. I don't miss those days. Yeah. So. No, I just uh, looked up a quick comparison and I saw it. Uh, this is kind of a funny, um, they got a, a funny tagline comparison. MySQL is known as the world's most popular open source database. That's their thing. Postgres's thing that's kind of known for is the world's most advanced open source database. It's kind of interesting. From from everything that I remember going through when looking at them, it seemed like Postgres was more often the one that enterprises would adopt if they were looking for an open source one, right? Over MySQL. It seemed like MySQL would be picked up by application developers doing everything. But if it was actually a big business doing it, they wanted Postgres, which was always kind of interesting to me. Yeah. Um, it's interesting though. So maybe I should reevaluate and uh, check back in. Yeah. Let us know in the comments and maybe we'll in a book. I'm trying to remember what was the name of that. Um, it was a tip of the week that I think Joe had in the past one or two, maybe three episodes back. Um, for oh db engines db engines.com. Oh yeah, uh, and it was episode. It was the reliability episode, so it was episode one twenty. Um, and I was curious to see, like, oh wait, how does it compare? Because, um, you know, like if you go to their homepage, MySQL is the DBMS of the year twenty nineteen. <laughs> I was like, all right, wow. well, I guess more people are going to pick MySQL over uh, Postgres. And here's the thing, though, and it's still higher if you go to the rankings page, mm-hmm. even if you're not looking at their best of the year, the rankings page, Oracle 1, MySQL 2, SQL Server 3, Postgres 4, number 5 is the first time you get to a document database, MongoDB. Right. And then the next one on the list is DB2, which is, again, back to relational. So, like, most of the top 10 that you'll see there are relational databases. So, it's, uh, it's yeah, pretty interesting. Like we said – they're really popular. There's only, today. Th- I'm sorry. There's only three in the top 10 that aren't, uh, relational. Yep. SQL, it's crazy. SQL, uh, no, what were the Redis, Elastic and Mongo are yep. the three. So, yeah. So no. I guess most people would pick, uh, MySQL is the point. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Now, hey, have you ever thought about using uh, a Datadog for a service like this? How about monitoring your DevOps workflows and pipelines? So if you are an Azure DevOps user, you can monitor your workflows and pipelines with Datadog to verify that your builds are actually working and that the deployments are happening the way you expect that they would be happening. I mean, that when I saw that blog article, I was like, oh, that is a crazy awesome use case for Datadog that would have never dawned on me. But you're like, oh, hey, outlaw, uh, you know, Azure isn't my thing. We're all on AWS. Don't worry. There's another article that you might like. I'll include some links to these. But uh, for monitoring Amazon EKS on Fargate with Datadog, like, 
how about that? That's so awesome that you could like monitor your entire uh, Kubernetes cluster with like serious visibility into what is going on inside of all of those nodes too with Datadog. And it's funny that you mentioned the blog. Uh, I had an article I wanted to mention too, uh, which was actually all about tagging theory or tagging strategies basically for um, observability purposes. So um, services like AWS or like Kubernetes, all the major cloud providers uh, give you the ability to tag things like basically key value pairs. And they've got a really great and insightful read about basically uh, some suggestions for how to tag your ar- architecture so you can use it effectively when you're trying to track down problems and and uh, just see what's going on there. And so definitely recommend checking that out. Yep. Yeah, so try it yourself today by starting a free 14-day trial and also receive a free Datadog t-shirt when you create your first dashboard. Yep. So again, head over to www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to see how Datadog can provide real-time visibility into your application. Again, that's www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to sign up today. All right. And now it's time for me to please ask you for a review. And we try to make it easy for you. We know it's a pain, but you know how much this means to us. If you're a first-time listener, then... uh and just know that we love reviews and we need them and uh, you're going to be hearing us ask you about them a lot because they mean so much to us and we really appreciate when we get them and uh, please consider it. Uh, go to codingbox.net slash review. We try to make it easy for you. You can find links there to uh, review us either on like iTunes or Stitcher or Podchaser or whatever your choice is. And we appreciate them all and thank you very much. And with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show survey says all right so um let's see a couple episodes back we asked what is the single most important piece of your battle station because if you recall we had just uh talked about our builds in the episode before i believe so your choices were the keyboard of course johnny five need input or the mouse my clicking game is on point. Get it? Or the monitor. I see dead pixels. Or obviously not the peripherals. It's all about the tower of power. Or the chair. Or should I say the CEO chair? And lastly, it's all about the desk. Nothing else matters if it's sitting on a TV tray. All right. <laughs> So, Alan, how about you go first? Uh, what's your pick and your percent? This one's a hard one, man. Like, I, I could see it being one of two things. I, actually, probably one of three or four things here. I'm going to go with it's all about the Tower of Power, and I'm going to say 35%. Okay. Uh, that's That's probably right. So, <laughs> can I just choose the same thing? <laughs> hey, you can you can prices right him. We can either win together or lose together. Yeah, <laughs> I'm fine with that. All right, we, yep. we will share or lose this victory together. You can you can outdo him with the the percent. You don't want to go to thirty six percent. No, no, no. I don't feel I don't feel good about that. <laughs> I have friends on the show. I think it's 35%. <laughs> Are you going to pick the exact same number? 
Yeah, that's no yeah. fun. No, one of you needs to be higher. No, this is really fun. This is no, twenty twenty. That's, that's what it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm changing things. I'm being direct. We're oh, breaking man. the rules. I'm pretty sure that the Price is Right rules. You can't do that. You can't pick the same. Hey, we got no Bob Barker here. Yeah, you he do. retired I, did anyways. You, did you not hear the way I announced this this section? <laughs> we absolutely do. You get a happy Gilmore's here in a second, even though he wasn't the guy that would say that. All right, well. So both of you are going to be boring and pick the same answer of obviously it's not the peripherals. It's all about the tower of power. And you're both going to pick the lame answer of 35%. Right. Yep. I have that right. All right. And if we get if we're both right, we have to do a spinoff according to Price's Right rules. <laughs> <laughs> the showcase showdown. Yeah. yeah. No, you're the right. Wheel. So showcase yep. showdown. Uh, uh all right. Well, you're both wrong. You both lose. Was it the monitor? No. Chair. Uh, no. Do you want to keep oh. guessing? Wow. The keyboard. The keyboard. No. no. Really? The keyboard. No. Of course, it's the keyboard. No. How many we times got trolled. We, How many times did we talk about mechanical keyboards versus chiclet keyboards? Like all the opinions that people have about those. Of course, that was going to rank high. No. How high was it? It was 28% of the vote. Oh, okay. So this is all spread out then. We've hacked. What's number two then? So uh, number two and three is a tie at 24%. And that's going to be the Tower of Power and the monitor. Very good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The the monitor and the Tower of Power. Well, now yeah. I'm scared because we've been hacked. So if you're getting like <laughs> emails hacked. about like diet pills or anything, it's not actually for me. <laughs> if you get any friend requests from me and we're already friends, don't accept it because I've been hacked. <laughs> well, if the worst of the spam email that you're getting from us is diet pills, then you're probably all right. Yeah, you do it. You do it. There's okay. much worse. <laughs> yeah, man. There's some scary ones. <laughs> man, that's that's really good. I was I was not expecting that. No, that's a surprise. All right. Well, how about for this episode survey, since we're talking about data models, we ask, which data model do you prefer? And your choices are. Hold on. I almost feel like because it's keyboards. Hey, our next survey, we won't, we won't usurp this one. Our next survey is going to be which keyboards do you use, right? Like like the one they ship. Make a note of that that one now. Huh? Can we do that one now? I need to know. <laughs> I know it's actually bothering me now. <laughs> like there's there's some things I don't know about keyboards apparently. No, no, but it will be our next survey. We, we must do it. So this one, we, all right. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Back to our regularly scheduled program here, Outlaw. I take it you're making uh, making notes for the next survey. Yeah. I am. We never have a survey ready ahead of time. This I know great. this is amazing, but but this actually this. I, I'm going to die trying to wait on these answers because we're talking probably another two months. <laughs> so, yeah. What's going to happen yeah. though is uh, people have already heard this survey idea and everybody's going to like just write it in as their comment or we'll get, uh, there'll be a whole Slack conversation about it. And uh, yeah, Ooh, that, that's where it'll happen. Leave Guaranteed. comments on this episode if you'd like. That's fine too. We're still going to have the survey. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. All right, so for this episode survey, as since we're talking about data models, we ask, which data model do you prefer? And your choices are the relational model. I love many, many joins. Six normal, fa- four, blah, 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 blah. Six factor, six, I can't even say it. <laughs> 
I can't even say the words, sixth normal form, all the things, or the document model. I'll worry about the data structure when I read it, or graph model. It just sounds cool. Like, oh, you're still using relational data models? That's cute. (laughs) Or polyglot persistence. I'll use what I think makes sense for the use case. I love that you shamed somebody out of a relational data model. (laughs) Oh, that's so yesterday. (laughs) That's cute. (laughs) 1970 called. (laughs) (laughs) What was his name again? Uh, Edgar called. He wants his data back. (laughs) Got a Mr. Dykstra on the phone for you. Oh, man. You sound angry. (laughs) Sounds angry. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new frameworks, languages, patterns, and practices. But there's so many resources out there. Which one should you choose? Meet Educative.io. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your local environment. The courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but more importantly, they're engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim back and forth in the course, uh, kind of like a book. So there's no need to scrub through hours of video to get to the parts you care about. And incredibly, all their courses have free trials and offer a 30-day return policy. So there's no risk to you. Now, here's even better, though. So we mentioned in the past that they have introduced subscriptions. They've extended the offer. So I don't know how much longer this offer is going to last. So get it while it's, while the getting's good. But yeah, they have 50% off their annual subscriptions. So, I mean, you could kind of think of it as like, hey, you could go to uh, educative.io slash coding blocks and you could get 20% off of a single course if that's the way you want to go. Or you can get 50% off of every course by signing up for a subscription during this limited time offer. And, oh, by the way, I should mention too that when you do lock in for that subscription, you're locked in at that discounted price for as long as you remain a subscriber. That's really nice. Uh, I wanted to mention too that uh, they actually make a lot of updates to courses. So I've noticed that a a few uh, system design problems in my favorite course, uh, Crocking the System Design Interview, have uh, been added since I looked, and I, I can see that they just added one for Ticketmaster now that I haven't seen. Uh, so that's really cool. And I also want to mention that uh, you're able to preview many of the chapters. So it looks like uh, 7 out of 31 of the sections in this particular course that I really enjoy uh, is uh, previewable, so you can get a sense of what all those other sections are like. And uh, as I mentioned before, and as we're t- we talk about on the show uh, pretty often now that we're discussing the book, uh, there's a lot of big systems here like Twitter, YouTube, or Netflix, or um, designing a web crawler that are just uh, highly relevant to the kind of stuff that we're talking about uh, lately. So you should definitely give that uh, a look if it's something you're interested in. Yep, it's a great way to learn. So start your learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's educative, E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E dot I-O slash coding blocks and get 20% off any course. So let, let's get into the discussion about NoSQL, right? And we, we've, we've, I think we've covered, uh, document databases enough, or I'm sorry, uh, relational databases enough. And now we want to do a deep dive on Lotus Notes. And uh, it's only fair, right? 
This Hang is its big it debut. Will be the next database. It's the, the big debut on Coding Blocks for Lotus Notes. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yes. So, yeah, NoSQL is the latest competitor to relational databases, or is it? We'll find out here in a little bit. But here's an interesting thing about it, and it always bugged me the name of NoSQL. And I'm glad that they actually elaborated on it in the book because I truly hate the term NoSQL. Um, it was originally intended as a catchy Twitter hashtag for a meetup about open source distributed non-relational databases. Okay. I love how that, like, I loved how that was how it caught on as a term. Right. Like, like, I guess we can't live without Twitter now. Like that, (laughs) that's what the world has come to. Like our, our terminology is now coming from hashtags that derive on Twitter. So, you know, you know, uh, remember, um, Weight Watchers or, you know, you've heard of the company Weight Watchers. Uh huh. It's pretty obviously what they do. If, uh, if you're not familiar with the company by their name, the rebranding to WW. Really? Yeah. That's terrible. Uh, it works better on social media. Ah, uh, interesting. So, www.ww.com. <laughs> yes. Terrible. <laughs> so, terrible. So, what they ended up doing with NoSQL, though, is they re, they sort of repurposed what NoSQL was. So now instead of just NoSQL, it stands for not only SQL. So they said, what did they say? They retroactively like <laughs> repurposed the name for that. So yeah, I mean, whatever. NoSQL basically means anything that's not a relational SQL data type thing, right? Which doesn't, the the part about that that is crazy is, it doesn't indicate the type of storage, right? Like when you talk about SQL, you're talking about tables, rows, and columns. When you're talking about NoSQL, it could be anything from a search engine like Elasticsearch to a key value pair thing to a JSON document storage to BSON document storage to like, it, it just means that it's not a relational database. And it's, it's funny and awkward how many non-relational data, so how many NoSQL databases uh, have some sort of SQL language variant that works for them. And it's almost pretty much all, all of them. Yeah. yeah, almost all of them. Yep. Wasn't there something it, else that we discussed recently where um, – I'm trying to remember what the what the name of it's called. I keep thinking of Anagram, but that's not it. Uh, where it was – they made up the, the name for it after the fact. Like everybody thought it was a – some abbreviation where every letter meant something, but it really wasn't. And they made one after the fact. And there's an actual term for that. And I can't even remember what the, the, the normal form is called. Cause it's not a, it's not a anagram and it's not abbreviation. Yeah. It's going to bug me now. <laughs> Jam stack. Uh, you know, what's interesting about this. So, talking about these these NoSQL databases and what you just said, Joe, about the fact that they all have a SQL type thing on them. When you start looking at big data implementations, if you dig into the tools around Hadoop or in AWS, Data Lakes, or anything like that, almost every single one of them has some sort of foundational tool that is SQL to be able to interact with all of them, right? So it, it's it's here to stay for a long, long time. Um, so they said, Hey, so why, why are people creating these no SQL solutions? Right. And this is kind of interesting. 
One was a need for greater scalability than what traditional RDBMSs could do. So, you know, we've talked about this whole vertical versus horizontal scaling. A lot of times your oracles, your SQL servers, those type of database systems, if you want it to run faster, you need, you needed more hardware on the same machine, right? Faster processors, more RAM, more space, faster drives, whatever. But then you kind of hit a limit. And there's a couple of reasons for that, which um, I book doesn't really go into too much, but uh, trans being, just having transactions and a uh, transactional nature is part of that. And also um, because relational databases, you kind of um, take your data and you split it up into a normal form. So you've got like your addresses over here and your people over there and your orders over there and separate tables that you can then bring back together. If you run a, a sort of query on something that you've scaled and you've split that information, you've had to put that information in different spots. And so if you've got to go and for every query, execute and find information from multiple servers, you're introducing a lot of latency and a lot of overhead. And like, what if one of them's down? But what a lot of times you'll see in uh, document databases in particular, and this isn't for all of them, but for, for most of them, it's very common. They actually store the data all together. So the document is stored and retrieved whole. There's no putting it back together. What that means is if you've got 10 different servers and the information lives on one or, you know, potentially multiple if it's, if it's replicated, then you can go and fetch it from one spot and you go and put it in one spot. And it makes a big difference when it comes to getting that information back out. Yep. And that's why you can have these very large data sets, right? So if you have, if you have a database that has a few tables, like you just said, um, you know, maybe users and orders, you got 20 million users and you got a hundred million orders. That's a lot of join that has to happen, right? To bring that data back and to be able to sort it. And it, Hey, if you just want the first 100, guess what? You're going to get the first 100, but it has to do that join and sort everything to know what that first 100 was, right? So it's a super expensive operation. Whereas in that distributed model, like what he was just talking about, you know, Hey, you want um, customers and orders. Well, you might have a customer and the orders might just be attached to that customer in that same, that same data blob there. So, um, so yeah, the, that whole need for greater scalability was to be able to handle super large data sets and also fast writes. So you're writing across multiple machines you have the IOPS available across all those machines. Now, to be fair, though, you could solve that same situation in a relational database. Like, you didn't have to go document to do it. If you were to, like, and, and there might, it might not be pretty, but you could, like, have one column of data where it's like, okay, hey, here's a an XML blob or a JSON blob that is, like, all of your orders, for that. So you, you get that one record that is the customer record and there's this other column that, you know, you're going to have to interpret, right? The big difference between what you're saying. Yes, totally. You could absolutely do that, right? You have a text blob or some binary blob or something that's available in that data row, right? You could do that, but now it's up to your application to be able to do anything mm -hmm. with it. Whereas if you're using one of these, you know, uh, no SQL solutions. It handles all that garbage for you, right? Like, well, but kind of, and that's why I made the joke in the survey that, like, if you go with the the document model, right? Like, you're with the relational, you're you're guaranteeing the structure of the data on the writes, but on the 
document model, you have to enforce the structure of the data data as you read it. And yep. so in either way, if you like did this super gross thing that I said that you could do where you created a column and, you know, had the big JSON blob or the XML blob in it, you know, that's where you're kind of guaranteeing or um, enforcing that like, Hey, when I read this column, I'm going to enforce what I think the structure of that should be at the time. But what you didn't solve there though, was the scalability, right? Like um, this whole notion that, Hey, that server no longer can handle the capacity. Now you're scaling out. So you fix the thing where, you're not necessarily joining the data, but you're not fixing the thing where the data set grows so large that it just performs like garbage on that one server, right? So that was part of the equation. Well, but that's, but also running on multiple servers, though, like that's not necessarily tied to the data model, right? Yeah, so you could partition the data and potentially have it like one big table and then kind of split it up amongst multiple nodes. But I think that when you do something like that, if you just kind of cram all the data into like a column, you start to lose some of the benefits of relational database. Like you're oh, not yeah, able definitely. to relate that data as easily, not able to query as easily. And no single databases like document databases uh, have mechanisms like they're kind of built around this notion of like MapReduce, which is just kind of designed to deal with multiple nodes and kind of running these things in parallel and putting it all back together. So it's just, uh, it's was set up from that with that idea from the get go, which by the way, for the uh, Postgres conversation we had earlier, that's actually one of the real big boons for it is a lot of times people that want a RDBMS plus a NoSQL solution, they'll go with Postgres because it has really good support for doing document um, queries within their own column. So if you have a JSON column, then you can query that thing. So, um, you know, it, it is kind of interesting. So the lines have blurred a little bit because the relational database systems out there, the people that have made them have looked at it and said, oh, people need this other stuff too. You know, let's add these features on. So there's a lot of bolt-ons to the RDBMS world now. Yeah. I, have we talked about NoSQL versus SQL before? I the questions forget. come up a lot. Like yeah. we've been asked that a lot in, in the Slack groups and, and it's always a hard thing to answer in, <laughs> in a few sentences because people are like, Hey, should I use Mongo or should I use Postgres? And it's like, man, what are you trying to do? Because and we'll get into some of the differences of them here in a minute, because I think yeah. it's worth talking about. As a matter of fact, I think wrapping up this episode, we're going to sort of talk about the use cases and where they come in. So we'll, we'll touch back on that. I mean, oh, NoSQL has definitely come up more than one time. Yeah. yeah. You know, in yeah. Past it comes episodes. up a lot. <laughs> and we're going to be talking lot. about a lot more kind of coming up because we're, as we're comparing different data models and different types of applications. But like what I all said about like whether you enforce your schema on read or on write is really important. And it's also as much of a weakness in some ways is a, is a strength in others. So like sometimes you have highly varied data and w- one example I've heard given before, it's like if you're like an Amazon and you've got a camera that has like these 150 different specifications and sizes and information about it. And you've got a bicycle, which has this 150 other completely disparate set of, you know, points of data. And the only things they have in common are like a picture and a name and a price then it's good that you can kind of like store these things without having such a rigid schema. And uh, frankly, uh, some of the properties might have different kind of restraints on them. So maybe like a camera, you know, they're they're they have a size property, but it only really makes sense in millimeters and the bicycle is much bigger parts. And so you're, you're dealing with uh, inches or feet or something. 
And so it's kind of good to be able to break that down at a more granular level. And that's something that doesn't really fit very well into a relational database because you end up getting this like columnar explosion. You know, it's funny that thing that all of what you just said reminds me of that article I wrote several years ago. Now it's been like three or four years ago about the, uh, the entity attribute value schema and having multiple types of products in a product database. It's still one of the most hit articles on our site, which is crazy because I wrote it a long time ago. But I think I'm going to revisit it because with a lot of the things that we've learned over the years, like I've even answered some of the questions that have come up on that post and basically said, you know, people are like, hey, did you finish? Like, no, you know, I I saw something shiny somewhere else and 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 I haven't gotten back to it. But but basically what it boils down to is I think it'd be a mixture of the two. Right. Um, If it ever when it comes back, right? Like you, there's probably some good pieces for the relational model and there's some good pieces for a no document or a document type model. So yeah, I'll anyways, have, I'll have, a, I'll include a link to it and it was called the database schema for multiple types of products. Cool. was the article title. Hey, to, I, I wanted to take a moment real quick cause it was going to drive me nuts if I did not remember what the name of that word was. So, so an acronym is the first word I was trying to remember. Right. Like if you have, if you make up a word that's basically like other words, like IBM, you know, international business machines. Right. But there was some, something that we talked about just recently where it was, uh, which is what the NoSQL is, where they changed it to be like not only SQL. So they reverse engineered that, which is a backronym. backronym. That's awesome. Yeah. Interesting. I swear PHP was personal homepages when I first heard about it. And then it became like, PHP hypertext processor or something. Maybe it was PHP that was the one that we were talking about. I can't remember. Mm, I can't remember either, but it, that's also driving me nuts. These are the <laughs> things that keep me up at night. Right. Unfortunately, these things don't keep me it up. It is. At that's, night. yeah. The, the, the recursive definition was a backronym. <laughs> backronym. <laughs> a backronym. Love All right. It. So. So onto the second. So what's the need? The second one here is there's a big desire for FOSS. If you ever see FOSS, that's free open source software, right? As opposed to the very expensive commercial database systems that a lot of companies use, the Oracles, the SQL servers, all that. Like those things have a price tag on them. And very comma, very comma expensive. Yes. Maybe <laughs> so, even another comma. And they're getting more so as time goes on. And you know, I, I have. Man, I wonder what you guys think. I half wonder if it's because they're just trying to push everybody into the web services, right? Because being completely honest, it's way cheaper to go with something like Azure um, Cosmos DB than it is to buy a bunch of on-prem licenses for SQL Server nowadays. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm curious if that's the marketing strategy there because they're like, hey, if we can just keep it all up here, we can keep our own telemetry. We can find out what everybody's doing. I, I don't know. I don't know, man. I mean, maybe, but then I'm like thinking to like an Oracle, for example. I mean, Oracle has been such a major and dominant player in the database world for how long now? Ever. And yeah. And like, I'm trying to think like, okay, well, what is their, how do they fit into that scenario that you just, don't they have a cloud? I don't know if they do. They do have cloud offerings, but it's, Hell yeah. I don't know. I mean, Oracle's even more expensive than SQL Server. So it's, I mean, like, I've seen the price tags on these things. They, uh, they're not for the, 
faint of heart. Um, so the next reason that that people want these NoSQL things is there's these specialized query operations that just don't work well in a relational model, right? Like if you, if you're doing some application things, they just don't map well. And another one is the shortcomings of relational models. Um, so like what Joe Zach was just talking about, where you have, you know, products that have just crazy amounts of metadata that are associated with them, trying to keep a schema up to date every time a new product hits the market that has a new piece of metadata that doesn't fit with what you already have, like trying to change that schema all the time is not only difficult, but it's also error prone, right? Like it's really easy to blow up your system when, when uh, everything's not in sync properly. So those were the needs that they had there. I mentioned uh, too that different applications have different needs and may require different data models. Uh, which I thought is a kind of a, a nod to polyglot uh, persistence where you might have the same data in two different databases and you've got to sync those. And the reason you do that is that uh, those different databases have different purposes and different needs and different formats, different data storages. And so um, you might have data in a search engine for searching and also a relational database for its transactional abilities. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I was going to specifically call out search indexes as, you know, a, a big reason why you might have multiple copies of the data. Yep. And that's a huge one. And that's actually one of the things I want to point out is in the book, they actually said different applications will have different data models, but that's where I feel like things are changing a little bit. Whereas it might be the same application, just different needs in the application are using different data models, right? Like Hmm. you could totally have an application that does orders, right? And maybe it's primary um, persistence layer is the database because it's transactional. But when you go to look up those orders later, that could be backed by a search index, right? Or something like that. So um, that's where I feel like, even just slices of an application now can, can pull from different places, but then keeping those things in sync behind the scenes can be a bit of a pain. Well, even, even, hmm, I don't know then if this would fit because same application, you know, your, your e-commerce site example that you were given, but I was thinking like, well, you might have the products in a search index and you know, the placing the order might be done in a transactional, you know, a relational database. I, I mean, being perfectly, clear on this. Like if you look at how some of the big companies do it, right? So you're absolutely right. Your product might, your product catalog might be in a search index. Your orders might also be in a search index. Ultimately the transactions might happen in a database, but they're probably going to a persistent queue first, right? So, I mean, there's all kinds of data models happening just for this one thing that feels very simple to you, but behind the scenes is, is hyper complex because of how everything needs to happen every step along the way. Well, even going along the lines of like the multiple copies of the same data uh, to add on to that idea, uh, even the concept of like, okay, well, you know, from the user's point of view, yeah, they might hit a search index to get the products, but from an administrative point of view uh, to manage that product catalog, you might be hitting, uh, you know, a relational database to, you know, for the edits or whatnot, or, you know, I'm, I'm excluding the queuing mechanism that you were, you know, that la- layer of complexity, but yeah. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> these things aren't simple. When you start getting into this, it, it it's uh, very much a lot to manage. So uh, this is, 
so we're going to move into the section here, which they called the object relational mismatch. And I thought this was pretty interesting. So they, they said in the book, and I don't know if this is true or not. I haven't really ever thought about it that much, but they said most applications today are written in some sort of object oriented programming language. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's assume that it is. Um, I mean, Java you know, is so ju- popular. Why would you not agree with that? What, what was so popular? Java. It's so popular. Oh. Why would you not agree with that? I don't know. I guess like when I think about this stuff nowadays, um, I, I mean, you have functional programming languages, you have your pearls, your, your procedural programming languages of the world. I don't know. I, I guess like when I heard that, I was like, ah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I live in an object oriented world, but I don't know if everybody does. So I, mean, I don't know if you heard about like VB.net was pretty popular. <laughs> it was. And it still is apparently. Oh, I don't always do a good job of it. (laughs) I don't think any of us do, but that's fair. Um, So what they said about this, this is one thing that is near and dear to our hearts. We've talked about this several times in the past is there's typically a translation layer that's required to map your data from its storage engine to your object oriented world. And in this case, they're talking about relational databases. So you're talking about ORMs, right? You have your database tables, and then that's somehow got to make it w- its way into objects that you can interface with in your application. Yeah, that kind of stinks, right? It's like the objects translate to this other model, and then we translate back into objects. So from the app developer's perspective, it's kind of like, okay, so why am I doing this? But uh, from anyone else, from a data perspective, who's working with that data in the database and doing more data-centric things – then it makes more sense to, for the format. It's just been frustrating and it's been a point of frustration for a long time. Yeah. And, and the crazy, and they call it here and it's sort of interesting because this goes back to almost like a, an, uh, an electric type of mm-hmm. area is they call it an Im- impedance mismatch. Um, just this whole notion of taking stuff from a relational model and putting your object model. And the thing to me that stinks about it is, a lot of times, and Joe, you alluded to this earlier, is you think about the database first. So you create that stuff, and then that's sort of you're thinking about your application. So you design your database tables a certain way, and then and then that flows out to your application. Well, ultimately, what happens is things change in your database, and they no longer match what you're actually trying to model in your application anymore. And that, to me, is where it all goes sideways, right? Like this thing that used to mean something now means something else. And there's no good way to break that. So um, you didn't think about speakers then when you thought about the impedance mismatch? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Ohms. Yeah. yeah. Ohmage. It's all, it's, it's electronics, right? It's, it's electric currents. No, no, no. Just speakers though. Just speakers. Yeah. I, 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 mean, I was thinking about I need about all the subwoofers that I can possibly fit. <laughs> did you ever try and hook up multiple speakers to the same amplifier? And you were like, why is this not working the way I thought it would? Right. Oh, did you? Yeah, absolutely did. Uh, okay, Are you kidding cool, yeah. me? <laughs> Run them in different in parallel or in different series. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about the problems that you're describing, but <laughs> yeah. uh, most, most speakers, less problems. Yeah. So, yeah, the thing about this is like they talk about you've got these frameworks out there and you've probably heard of several of these. So you got Active Record, which is a big Ruby one, Hibernate, which is a Java one, Entity Framework, which is our C sharp favorite. Um, there's a ton of these, right? And they're all there basically to reduce the boilerplate 
and to help reduce the amount of code that you actually have to write to use the stuff. But none of them fully fix the problem that there is this mismatch between a database and your objects. Yeah, I mean, this is going back to the, you know, uh, I don't, maybe not even going back, but just, you know, how like specific to any framework, right? Like some people absolutely hate it because of the ways that it, you know, can go retrieve data if you're not careful about how you write uh the code that is using in any framework under the, under the covers. Right. And it's, you, you could say that it's because of this mismatch in like how you're trying to represent the data in memory versus how it was represented in the relational database. Uh, you know, that, that that's causing the issues there. Yeah. It's, it's not an easy. No, it's complicated. I I mean, it really isn't. It's just, I think as long as you have this where your database drives your application or whatever, you're always going to run into these things. And and you can model things pretty close. But going back to our domain-driven design discussions before, it's not necessarily what you want to do anyways, right? Just because something's named customer in the database doesn't mean that's what you should be naming it in your application, right? Like if you're writing something for, um, uh, let's call the shipping department, right? Um, Or actually, maybe not even shipping department. Let's call it a vendor, right? A customer means something for a vendor than it does for your um, customer service department, right? So just because a table's named something over here doesn't mean that's how it should be represented in your application. And then that means you're going to be building more layers on top of that to hide the fact that it was even called customer in the database, you know? So I, I don't know, man. It just gets into a really nasty place. But... These ORMs, at least in my opinion, are pretty necessary to to make your applications not completely garbage, right? Well, just because you end up kind of creating your own anyway. Right. right. So <clears throat> there was the uh, the statement that you, you weren't sure about where most applications written today are in object-oriented programming languages. And I joked about VB.net. So I thought, oh, this might be a, a fun little thing to go back to. <clears throat> Excuse me. The uh the Tyobi index for December of 2019. So this this extremely current, extremely current. <laughs> and the top 10 um <clears throat> excuse me. programming languages. Now, don't go and cheat. Don't go look at it. Are, is that what you're doing? Don't go do that. Stop. I'm not yet. I'm, Stop. I'm almost there. <laughs> Stop. Stop. But what do you think number one is? It's got to be VB.net. <laughs> I mean, of course. I mean, I'm not going to fault you for selecting that choice. But, Joe? VB.net. <laughs> no, guys. I told you earlier. It's Java. It's clearly Java. So top 10 goes <clears throat> like this. Java, C, Python, C++, C Sharp, Visual Basic.net, JavaScript, PHP, SQL, and number 10 is Swift. So out of that, I believe that. out of that top ten, according well, I mean this is the world renowned Tyobi index. Visual Basic .net. There's no way out of that top ten though. Uh, only what three of them? Let's see, C and SQL. So just two of them are not object oriented. Well, PHP isn't technically 
object oriented, right? It, uh, they kind of bolted it on like twenty years ago. Yeah, <coughs> I mean, I Wait. you know, twenty what? years I mean, ago is long to, enough that I would call it. <laughs> I need to rewind my statement on Visual Basic. Maybe it is, and maybe because I don't write desktop applications, that's why I don't see it as higher. Maybe. And Tyobi is not right. <laughs> not to say just that, but just the, the whole list in general. A lot of it is so far from my experience in the world that I have a hard time with it. But maybe, maybe Delphi. they're looking at some stuff. Delphi is number twelve. Yeah, I, I have a, uh, number twelve is not. No, there's no way that's right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why you would not. Choose this. Obviously, this is so oh, against Delphi, but it's not is correct. Yeah, I just I, I can't see it. All right, so so again, we poo poo on on Tyobi. I'm um, going to have a link to the ultra accurate <laughs> world renowned Tyobi index for December of 2019, <laughs> and uh, you can you know make your own judgments. Uh, that's beautiful. All right, so. What I put in here for the next one is in the book, they talk about like uh, the difference between a relational implementation of like LinkedIn's resume type thing versus a NoSQL implementation of, of the same type thing. And I figured, you know, let, let's not copy everything out of the book. Let's talk about like something that we've all sort of worked with, which is like orders, right? Customers and orders and that kind of thing. And talk about some of the, Good things for relational databases, the bad things, and the good and bad for NoSQL. What, what do you guys think? Uh, I mean, I definitely like the scalability. I like the locality of the data, so you'll be able to kind of fetch the most common stuff w- with your data back. So, uh, you're talking about you're talking about the NoSQL approach, yeah, specifically about NoSQL. And the reason why I started with the SQL there is because I'm so used to <laughs> relational that. <laughs> It's like not even fair to be like, well, that's just because that's how that that is the way. Doctor, <laughs> I mean, it's important to call it because I don't know that we've said this yet, but when you refer to that locality, you know, if we're talking about like the document model, um, there was the example that was given er- earlier about you know you have the customer record and maybe that document, or I should say, customer document, not record, but that that document includes all of the orders along with it, right? And it's that's the locality that those orders being already there coming along for coming along for the ride for free when you query and get that single uh, customer document. So maybe we should back up for people that haven't messed with NoSQL or document databases or anything like that in the past. We're talking about in a document database is basically every record is a document. And if you want to visualize that thing as if you're comfortable with JSON, that's probably a good one. So you might have this object and, and let's say this is the uh, uh, customer's table. That document is going to represent each one of us. Like each one of us would have a record, right? There's going to be a Michael record and Alan and Joe. And then in that, there's going to be a property called orders, right? And that's going to have an array of other documents under it, right? So Michael's going to have 50 orders. I'm going to have 60 and Joe's going to have 70. 
and all the details of those orders will be in line in that document as nested JSON type documents, right? So that's sort of an easy way to visualize it. If XML is your thing, just think about it as XML with nested nodes, right? But basically everything's stored in one place as opposed to the relational database where you're going to have a customer's table, an orders table, um, an order items table, and you know, a bunch of other tables that have to be joined together. So, so that hopefully that paints the picture here. Yeah, and it's really good for, uh, say, like web apps where you want to go get the customer. You want to get the orders. It's uh, it's kind of entity-focused. It's terrible for writing reports where sometimes you want to know uh, how many people bought uh, this product on a holiday because of a coupon. What are our top kind of 10 stress. selling products? Right. Yeah. Because those are all nested within a bunch of customers, within the orders, within the order details. Yep. Yeah, that's really tough. And I wanted to point out too, we didn't really talk about it, but uh, a lot of the niceties that you have with relational databases, like things like indexes that make it fast and perform to look up stuff, a lot of that still applies to NoSQL, uh, like document databases. They can still keep indexes. They can still do little tricks and optimization, caching, um, performance uh, optimizers, things like that. A lot of those things do carry over. It's just this kind of fundamental kind of structural difference that makes all the difference. Yep. And so a couple of other things to tack on here for me, like looking at the, at the no approach, they already said like some of the niceties is you want to go get all the orders for that one customer. You just grab that one customer and you got them all right. Um, another nice part about document databases. If you think about them, that document is a snapshot in time. There is no relationship anywhere. Right. So let's say that you place an order today and you're at your house in Florida, right? That address of where it shipped to is a snapshot of that moment in time. There's no lookup to an address location in another table. So you don't have to worry about, Hey, well, if somebody goes and changes that, is it going to change where it says that I shipped this thing to? Cause I really shipped it to Florida. I didn't ship it to Georgia. Right. So, so. To me, like when I look at a lot of NoSQL or, or document storage solutions, a lot of times it's, am I trying to snapshot something? Am I trying to get back a hierarchy of things all at once? You know, those, those are really important things to me to think about. You know, Santosh does a great uh, presentation. Our buddy uh, Santosh in Orlando uh, does a great presentation on NoSQL. I'm going to see if I can find uh, a copy of it online that we can point to. Oh, excellent. Um, then going to the relational side of things, so not even talking about scalability, right? Like, let's just assume in the NoSQL world, scalability is one of the reasons why you want to use it, right? So if if all of a sudden you have way more customers than you did previously and it, and it needs to perform well, that's one of the beauties of, of most NoSQL implementations is, hey, you can just add 10 more servers and magic happens, more or less, right? It's more to manage, but it works. Um, but in the relational world, the thing that's nice is, hey, I need to go look up information about this customer, right? I can look at, I can look at an order number and it's probably going to have the customer number on it. I can go look up the customer information and I have it right now. And like Joe said, if I want to do reports, hey, what were the top selling products, uh, this month? That's really easy to do because all you got to do is go to the order details table and basically do a sum on the quantity and all that and you're good. But, then you have the scalability problems and you also have the issue of, Hey, how do you store snapshot data? Right. I mean, 
I know all three of us have run into this in the past where it's like, oh, well, we need to we need to track changes in a system. So what do you do? You end up creating a bunch of archive tables or or if you've got something like SQL Server, you got temporal tables or something like that. You just go through you jump through a lot of hoops to do stuff that it's really not designed to do. Yeah, how many times do you give the bug that uh, someone says, like, this shouldn't happen, look at the state, and you go, and by the time you track it down, you're like, well, this wasn't the state of it that the time happened, this happened, and this happened, and that's why it looks like this now. Yep, and that's that's the thing, right? Like, when you talk about a relational database system, the purpose of it typically is transactions and truly relational lookup data, right? When you start breaking outside of that world to where – You don't want that stuff to change, right? Like you want to know that, you know, maybe if it was a woman and when she placed that order two years ago, she was Jane Doe and now she's Jane Smith. Should that have changed? Right? Like if you go look her up now, are you going to be able to find Jane Doe if you changed her name to Jane Smith and there's only one record of truth? So there's a whole lot of things that you have to consider when you're talking about, do we use a relational database system for this or do we use a NoSQL implementation? And by the way, we haven't even talked about some of the other cool things, right? Like we're talking about document storage right now. There's also graph databases. There's uh, key value databases. There's search indexes, right? Like all of those are NoSQL solutions. And uh, this book goes really deep on all this. So stay tuned. So that leads me back to the question that I told you to remind me about, but I actually typed it in at the end so I'd remember. So you said that you typically think about the database first when you go to create an application. Now that all of us have worked in multiple storage systems, do you still find yourself doing that from the database perspective? I think, uh, you know, we talked about the educative course on the system design interview. I think that, um, that particular course maps well to the way I kind of think about things where like I start with the problem. I start slicing it up. I start thinking about the, the use cases and very quickly I end up thinking about data, but I don't even want to say databases anymore. I think about it in terms of more of services or systems. So I might like if I'm drawing an architectural diagram, uh, there's a good chance I'm going to end up with a relational database. But there's also a good chance I'll end up with a SQL in there or maybe like some Redis cache or some other things. And I'm kind of thinking like high level about uh, kind of a larger application. And so it's, I don't, I would say that now in the last couple of years, I don't think about the database first, but I still think about uh, my data services first. Okay. Interesting. What about you, Outlaw? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about like which cool framework I get to play with. So. <laughs> You know, is this going to be a React thing, an Angular thing? Is this a Python thing? Jingle. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think about it in terms of the database first. I, I, yeah, I guess like if it's something that I'm doing on the side, you know, just to play around with something, like I'm definitely just thinking about it more. You know, like hey, what what stack do I want to play with to learn with? Like I'm not even, I don't even care what the data is, and if it's something for professional then needs, then I probably already have the data somewhere yeah, that I don't true. have, that I don't already, that problem is already solved for me. So I don't even have to think about it like that. 
Mm-hmm. It's I mean, funny just to hear like how we kind of took the question because I kind of assume you said like, "Hey, how do you do a Twitter?" And then, like that's how I kind of approach it. But you like Ally sounds like your perspective is more of like a, "Hey, I want to do something cool. Like, how do I want to do it?" Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think for me, when I do that stuff nowadays, I'm tending to think about more what the data is going to be used for. So. So in the past, I would have definitely thought about the database design first because that's what I did for years and years, right? And now I think more about how is this going to be used? So does this need to be in a search index or does this need to be in a relational table or do I need to snapshot the data? And so a document storage like, so I'm always now thinking about how, like what is going to be the use of this thing? So I'm way overcomplicating the systems before I even set them up. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is sponsored by About You. About You is one of the fastest growing e-commerce companies in Europe, headquartered in Hamburg, Germany. The online fashion store is currently live in 10 European markets with more than 8 million app installs and 15 million active users on its platform, which handles more than 300 million API calls per day. In 2018, About You reached a company valuation of more than 1 billion US dollars, moving up to the exclusive circle of European unicorns. This could only be achieved by the excellent work of About You's tech teams, One third of their employees are developers and come from over 40 different nations, which truly enriches the teamwork of the company. What they all have in common is that they're highly driven by the passion to develop the best product on the market. About You also has an award-winning organizational move model that allows developers to switch teams, ensuring constant learning and developer fulfillment. About You has built its software in-house with leading technologies like Laravel, Node.js, and TypeScript on the server side, Vue.js and React on the client side, and Flutter for mobile applications. Besides a variety of free drinks and fresh fruits, About You offers free language courses and helps new employees in the relocation process if they move from abroad. Moreover, developers get free tickets to About You's own organized conference, Code.Talks, one of the biggest tech conferences in Europe. The conference that is taking place in Hamburg is visited by more than 1,500 developers. Furthermore, About You offers a well-structured onboarding process with a buddy system that provides access to e-learning tools such as Laracast.com and Egghead.io. When starting at About You, you have the choice between different hardware setups as well, like MacBook or Windows Notebook, and the kind of IDE that you want to work with. About You is growing fast and is constantly hunting for new and motivated team members. About You currently has positions available for full stack, front end, Dart, Flutter developers, a quality assurance engineer, a project manager, as well as other exciting leadership opportunities. So does this sound good to you? Apply now at aboutyou.com slash job. They're looking forward to hearing from you. Again, that's aboutyou.com slash job. To apply now. All right. So now I just want to quickly mention some resources we like. Of course, the book, Designing Data Intensive Applications, and we're giving away a copy. So make sure to leave a comment there and maybe you'll win. And uh, I've got the link there for uh, Santosh uh, Hari uh, talking about no SQL versus SQL. And I'll have some other links there too. There was the link to Alan's uh, article, and uh, obviously the Tyobi index is going to be in there. 
Um, Super accurate, Tyobi. I mean, everybody wants to read that one. <laughs> uh, so with that, I guess we'll head into uh, Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. I do love this portion. I didn't love it tonight, though, because I haven't done any coding in two or three weeks. So, um, yeah. Two or three. But I did find some things. And and part of this came up during the show. So the whole uh, tangent, or not tangent, but the whole thing where we were talking about the MySQL versus Postgres, and you guys were talking about tooling and how it was so bad on MySQL back in the day. Well, I feel like, because I've played with it in in more recent than I guess what you guys have, the MySQL tools, at least the freely available open source ones, are way better than the Postgres ones because PG admin is about what you get out of Postgres and it's severely lacking. So my first tip of the week is if you are working with multiple database systems or if you're working with Postgres or anything that's sort of weak in the tool area, check out JetBrains data grip. It is really good. Um, like super good. I know outlaw you've used it a lot. I think you kind of are a fan of it. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. still, um, it's hard. Like, you know, I've done SQL server for so many years and use SQL management studio for so many years that that's like, that's your friend. I mean, you, it's like you your know, your standard, friend, like right? you can go drinking with your friend and you know, if you get into trouble, your friend's going to bail you out, you know, but, but then comes long data grip and you're like, Oh, Hey, that's kind of cool. You know, it's, it's, a, uh, you know, I like new cars. And it's a new car, right? <laughs> it's not- it's a new car with a ton of functionality. So it's got all the new yeah. wiring that we were talking about earlier, right? So, yeah, data grip's nice. If you plan on doing something in Postgres or something, check it out. I think it's ninety nine bucks, or is it one ninety nine? I don't know. Um, I'll look it up. How's that? Yeah. At any rate, it's probably worth it because fighting with your database system is not that great. And then, so the next thing I want to do is, I believe, I think it was Mike RG um, from, or Mike Mike RG uh, in Slack. He actually posted this the other day because he's heard me and Joe Zach talking about Kafka and, you know, our pains and whatever. There is a, another GUI out there for it that allows you to look at topics and all this kind of stuff. Um, So I have a link to that. I can't even pronounce what it is. So did you say we'll this is for Kafka? Say what? Did you say it was for Kafka? Because I didn't hear it if you did. I'm yes, sorry. for Kafka. Okay. And then I wanted to give a shout out to a little project that Joe Zach had put together that's actually really cool. So what he did <laughs> is he had wrapped a lot of the Kafka admin calls with GraphQL. So you can actually, he's got a graphical UI to where you can start typing in the query. And Joe, I don't remember everything that it does, but I want to say that you can pull back a list of topics. You can pull back data in the topics. Like, yeah, like a hundred percent of the, uh, the admin functionality, the admin client specifically, uh, you can get via, uh, GraphQL. And it's also, you're able to fetch the messages to via, uh, subscriptions. Yeah, so super, super cool stuff. So um, there'll be a link in there for his as well because it's worth checking out. I think um, last time I looked at it with him, the only thing he said is some things are slow because it's querying a bunch of metadata from you know all the different brokers or whatever. But 
I mean, there may not be an easier way to find out what's going on with a bunch of low-level data than this type thing. So I would definitely check that out. Heck yeah. And by the way, JetBrains is 200 or Data Grip is $200. Okay, 200 Still probably worth it. Just a heads up. Well, that's and actually for organizations, so I'm sorry. If for individual use, then it would only be $90. Okay, there you go. For, at 90 bucks, absolutely get it. No question. At 200 tell your company to buy it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, hey, free tip here. Uh, if you sign up for the mailing list, uh, we frequently have JetBrains licenses to give away. And yes. Data Grip is one of them. Yep. All right. So uh, for my tip of the week, have you ever had a need to do any geodesic measuring, distance measuring? Uh, just this morning. So. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, I thought you were serious. No, oh, I was totally like, not. Oh, man, he's going to steal my thunder here. <laughs> do you know what it is when I say it? When I said it? Nope. Okay. Okay. So I sound super smart because I said that word. I said the words, but I didn't know that that's what it was called either. But we've all heard the phrase like as the crow flies. Yeah. Okay. So basically geodesic distance is when you want to measure the distance between two points and you just want to measure it as a straight line. You don't care about the actual roads that you have to travel on. Right. And so I had this recent need where I was like, Hey, what is the point to point distance from where I'm at to this other location? And I didn't realize this is a thing in Google Maps and has been since 2014. So what you can do is you can go in and uh, like put in your the, the addresses that you're interested in and you can right click on the first point and say, so let's say that you like uh, said map, you know, from your house to uh, some store. I don't care. And, and so you have both points showing up on the map. So you can right click on the first point and select measure distance and then right click on the second point and select distance to here. And Google will draw a straight line from the two points and it'll show you in the bottom, there'll be, uh, the bottom of the map. It'll actually show you the actual distance. But on that straight line though, you'll see. Uh, depending on the scale may vary, you know, if it's like here every 10 miles or every five miles or every one mile, you know, but they'll, they'll be like hash mark for some kind of representation with, you know, and it'll tell you like 10 mile, 30 mile or 10 mile, 20 mile, 30 mile, et cetera. So I thought that was super cool. Um, that is cool. Yeah. And then um, a tip from, uh, you know, Mike RG, cause of course we would have another tip from Mike RG. <laughs> um, any tip that we give is there's probably like at this point, I want to say there's a, there's a greater than 90% chance that he, uh, hit us up on Slack and was like, Hey, have you seen this? So, uh, we all know how I like get, I, I might've talked about it once or twice. So, uh, he, he sent me this article that's titled how to undo almost anything with Git." And it's like a cheat sheet of here's all the commands to undo different things, right? Like you want to fix your last commit message? Well, here's the git commit amend uh, command that you would need to use to do that, right? Um, you know, now I'll share this. And as I've said, with similar kind of, uh, you know, git recommendations in the past, you know, careful about changing shared history, Right. Uh, I'll always keep that in mind. If in, in my mind, 
if the history has already been shared and others are using it, then it is not cool to go and change that. Right. But I'll, I'll include that link in there. Cause I thought it was, uh, had some really neat, um, tips and it was all in like, you know, one great place. Uh, so I'll include that article. All right. Well, um, uh, I forgot, <laughs> I forgot about the tip of the week. Uh, so, uh, so I'm playing off this time. Do y'all remember Yahtzee? The game? Absolutely. Yahtzee, the video game reviewer, right? Oh, wait, the video game. What, what were you th- are you thinking of the game? <laughs> Get out of here. Isn't that, isn't that what you said? I'm talking about Yahtzee. So, like, when the, when YouTube was still kind of young, there was a, a, a young video game reviewer with a terribly foul mouth that used to do video game reviews, and they were animated. Uh, so anyway, it, it was a popular YouTube video that kind of went viral like way back in the day. And I guess he's been doing all sorts of awesome stuff ever since that I just kind of missed out on. But I, uh, had a bunch of audible credits to spend, uh, at the end of the year that I kind of forgotten about. And so I went through and I just kind of picked up a couple books and I recognized the voice of a, a book I was listening to called We'll Save the Galaxy for Food. It was like funny, kind of like a Douglas Adams kind of, um, uh, it's like a ring world or sorry, disc world or, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of humor, like very funny. And I recognized the voice and I looked at the author and it was, it was Yahtzee, the video game reviewer from way back. Oh, whoops. <laughs> That's not his voice. I don't know if that'll be in the recording. Well, no, that was, that was, I was, that was the video that auto played when I would go to the Yahtzee channel on YouTube. Well, this person has, I believe it's an Australian, uh, accent. And, uh, very foul. <laughs> well, also very funny. So anyway, the book is really creative. It's really funny. He actually reads those own audio book. I've been really enjoying it. I'm still very early into it, but it kind of scratches that kind of like old school Douglas Adam kind of, um, Terry Pratchett, uh, kind of itch that I've had for a long time. So I was very happy with that. And I think, uh, God Progman in particular would, uh, would enjoy it. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and, uh, get him hooked on it too. And if that sounds like something you're interested in, then, then you should, uh, take a tech break and give it a listen. I like it. All right. That's about it. So, uh, this episode, we talked about data models and we've got a lot more coming. So, um, stay tuned. Yep. And don't forget to leave a comment if you want a chance to win the book, cause it is a fantastic book. So uh, go up there and do that. All right. Well, with that, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitter, Stitcher, Spotify, or more using your favorite podcast app in case of a friend happen to uh, point you into the direction of a specific episode or you're listening on their device. And uh, if you haven't already, we would love if you would leave us a review. You can find some yep. helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Yep, and while you're up there at codingblocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel. And follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks, or head over to CodingBlocks.net. And if we get it fixed, uh, you'll see all the social links at the top of the page. Sorry about that. It definitely wasn't me. I just happened to be the last one to touch it. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh.